0: The Lord be with you. When I graduated from seminary, I was offered a job by the Bishop of Metropolitan New York. And the job was this. I was to plant a new congregation in Brooklyn, in a neighborhood where there was all sorts of young people moving there by the thousands every single year. Now here's the thing. I grew up on the west coast. I had never been to Brooklyn. I knew no one who lived in Brooklyn, but I did know that of all the church plants that our denominations start, 90% of them fail, 90%, 9-0. So start a church with a 90% chance of failure in a place I'd never been to and never knew anyone before. I was offered this job and I said, totally, I'll take this job because all those other guys might have failed, but I can make this happen. So our sin for this week is pride. Yes, yeah, you can see where I'm going with this, okay. Um, So here's the thing. Pride, in my mind, is one of the most subtle of the deadly sins because we need a little bit of pride to function in life, right? We need a little bit of self-esteem, of self-love, a sense of self-worth, so that we can face the challenges and the struggles that we encounter each and every day. But the question is, where does that sense of self-worth come from? In our gospel lesson today, people come to Jesus and they tell him, oh, you know, there was all these people who were killed, Galileans, they were killed by Pontius Pilate because they weren't respecting Roman authority all those people who got killed, is it because they're worse sinners than everyone else? And Jesus says, no. And then the word on the street is that there was a big tower in Jerusalem that had just fallen over and it crushed 18 people. And Jesus thinks, says to the, the crowds, do you think the people who got crushed when the building fell on them, do you think somehow they were worse offenders than anyone else? No. Because you see, sometimes our sense of self-worth comes from comparing ourselves to other people. So we say, well, those people are suffering, but I'm not. It must be because I'm better than them. Yeah, right. Because if I wasn't better than them, why wouldn't I be suffering also? So it must be because I'm better than them. And we can tell ourselves this for all sorts of reasons, right? It's obviously I'm smarter than them or stronger than them or I'm just holier than them, and that's why they suffer and I don't. Because I'm better. Sometimes we say this on a small scale, right? Oh, I get better grades than that person, so I'm better than them. Or sometimes we try to do this on a massive scale, right? My racial group has more financial resources than theirs, and so clearly my group is better. Now, there's different types of pride. And to clarify the type of pride I'm talking about when I'm talking about pride through comparison, I want us to use a different word. For this type of pride, let's use the word hubris. Hubris for pride through comparison. Hubris in ancient Greek meant arrogant action against the gods. And hubris works well for us as Christians because when we find our self-worth by comparing ourselves to others, this is an act of arrogance against God. The God who created everything in the universe and declared it good. Because when we say that we are better because than someone else, what we are doing is giving in to the temptation that the serpent gave us in the Garden of Eden to say, why don't you make yourself like God? Why don't you judge for yourself who is good and who is bad? Why don't you make God in your own image? And I will admit, this is what I did. I had hubris to the max when I was in Brooklyn because I was called to start a new congregation in a new place and I was given 2,000 years of Christian tradition and heritage about how it is that you gather people into a community, how you nourish them with the word of God and the sacraments. And I said, "Now nah, I don't need any of that. I said, I'm going to remake the church in my own image, because I know better than all those 2,000 years of history what it's going to take to gather people in Jesus' name. And I said, the way we're going to do this is we're going to evangelize by making giant crossword puzzles in the subway stations. There's a picture. You know, that way people could put up... uh, Uh, Fill it out together instead of everyone doing their own crossword puzzle in the newspaper, right? It's community building, great. And I said, we'll have fellowship by making giant soap bubbles filled with dye in the park. And we'll make splatter art with that together. That'll be our fellowship. And I said, you know what? For our worship service, we're going to read scripture, yes. But we're going to do it while covered in paint. And then we're going to dance against the canvas. And that'll be our liturgy. We We won't worry about anything else. Jesus tells a parable today in our gospel reading and in this parable there's a man who owns a vineyard and he's planted a fig tree and he goes looking for fruit on this fig tree and after three years he doesn't find any and so he says to the gardener I'm not seeing any fruit cut this thing down why should it be wasting the soil and the gardener says well you know give it a minute let me let me take care of it let me dig around its roots and plant manures fertilizer and then give it a year see if it bears fruit if it does, well, and good. If not, cut it down. Sometimes in this parable, we are the owner of the vineyard. We are the one who says, that person? That person hasn't produced anything lately? What good is that person doing in my life? Time to cut them out. Or we say, what, person is, what benefit is that person to society? Cut them out. Or we say, that way of doing things, pff, it's worthless. Cut it out. And of course, Jesus is the gardener. The one who says, well, have you really given them a chance? Have you given that person the love and the resources and the support they need to succeed? Or that way of doing things that you're writing off, have you really committed to it and tried it to its fullest? For me, I wasn't that person the vineyard owner, the one who said, eh, this way of doing things, it's worthless, cut it off. But Jesus was for me the people of a congregation called saint paul's lutheran church it was a spanish-speaking congregation la iglesia luterana de san pablo and they were in the same neighborhood where i was trying to plant this new congregation but saint paul's lutheran church didn't have a pastor it was a very small congregation and they couldn't afford to pay one but they had a large building with plenty of space and this crazy arts ministry that i was created needed space so we made a deal they would let the arts ministry use their building if I would preach for them each Sunday, and so I did. It helps. My mother's from Mexico. I speak Spanish. I have that heritage. It worked out, but here's the thing. As I would go there each Sunday just to preach, they would start to say, hey, you know, pastor, our kids are getting old enough. It would be wonderful to teach them about First Communion. I said, oh, okay, sure, fine, and they'd say, um, you know, we've got teenagers. We'd love for you to teach them confirmation. I said, okay, fine. And they said, you know, I, I've got a friend who's sick. Pastor, would you please go visit her? And I said, yeah, sure. And they said, you know, we really love a worship service that looks like 19th century Catholicism where all the kids are dressed up as acolytes and they've got a thurible swinging incense everywhere and, you know, candles. And we, we play the same 10 hy- hymns on the organ every month. And I said, yeah, okay, fine. Here's the thing about hubris. Hubris cuts us off from God's blessings. Because when we think we're better than other people, when we think we know better than their way of doing things, we say, well, why should I pay attention to them? Why should I be connected to them? Why should I listen to how they want to do things? We cut them off. But each person is a part of Christ's body. And so when we cut off people, we cut off Christ from ourselves. We cut off the means of God's blessings. And I will tell you, the people of St. Paul's were a blessing for me. They asked me to do ministry in the most traditional way imaginable, a way of doing ministry that I had completely written off. But in doing so, they invited me to become their padrecito. Padre is a Spanish word for like a father, a priest, right? Padrecito is a little priest because I was like 26 years old. I was a baby, but they adopted me as one of their own. They asked me to do things like organize quinceaneras for them. They asked me to uh, organize the Mexican Christmas tradition of Las Posadas, right? We, we gathered together and, and celebrated uh, the Virgin of Guadalupe. And, and in doing all this, they reconnected me to my own Mexican heritage, but more importantly, They reconnected me to my Christian heritage, those 2,000 years of tradition that I had written off. And while they were doing all that, the clock was ticking on my arts ministry. Because when our denomination plants a new church, just like the fig tree, that church plant is given three years to bear fruit. And when the denomination means bear fruit, what it means is to become financially self-sustaining. That's the fruit the denomination is looking for, right? And so here's the thing. Three years later, the bishop's assistant came and said, All right, Ben, we've been paying your salary. Let's see what the fruit is that you've produced. We'd like to meet with all the people who are members of this crazy art ministry that you've done. I said, hey, that won't be a problem because there's only five of them. Here's the thing, the other thing about hubris, the thing about finding our self worth through comparison. It's incredibly fragile. If our self worth is based on comparing ourselves to someone else, the moment we come up short of that other person, our self worth is shattered. We find ourselves worthless. And you may have noticed that the very people who claim that they are the best because of their race or their wealth or their religion are the very people who feel the most threatened, who are constantly saying how they're under attack because they know that in their understanding of how they have worth that either they're number one or they're done. Either they're the winner or they're dinner. It was a little slow there, but all right, you got there, all right. Um, Look, I am someone who spent my whole life finding my self-worth in comparison. I was the valedictorian in my high school. In college, I was inducted into Phi Beta Kappa Honor Society. In seminary, I won a national award for one of the most promising pastors. My whole life, I had believed that I could do anything I put my mind to. For me to spend three years pouring my life into trying to start a congregation from scratch and to utterly fail was devastating. If I wasn't number one, I was done. And I wasn't number one. I knew 90% of these church plants didn't succeed, but that meant there were 10% that did. That meant there were 10% of pastors who were better than me. I wasn't the winner, and so I was dinner. I was ashamed. I was worthless. I remember, like the Israelites who in Exodus say to God, God, were there not graves enough in Egypt? Did you have to bring us out to the wilderness just so we could die here? I remember praying to God saying, God, were there not chances enough for me to fail on the West Coast? Did you bring me to Brooklyn just to make a fool out of me? But in the midst of that, something beautiful happened. Something beautiful happened in that meeting between the bishop's assistant and those five members of that art ministry. The five members of that art ministry said to the bishop's assistant, give us one more year. Not for the art ministry, but for the people of St. Paul's. Because we have seen in the time that Ben has been working with them that that ministry has been flourishing. So fund Pastor Ben for one more year. Not because we think this art ministry is going anywhere, but because we will work with the people of St. Paul's so that they might bear fruit, so that in one more year, they might be able to afford to call Ben as their pastor. Sometimes in the parable of the fig tree, we are the gardener. Sometimes we are the one who says, you know what, don't write that person off. Don't cut them out of their lives just yet. That thing, or that dream, that vision you had, don't give up on it yet. Give it another year. Give it all the love and TLC that you can and see what comes out of it. Because maybe that's what it needs to be, who God has created it to be. Maybe then it will bear fruit. And I will tell you, St. Paul's bore fruit. They bore fruit both in terms of numbers, right? The congregation went from 10 people, it tripled in size. It it was 30 people after that fourth year. But more importantly, the people in that congregation began to take ownership of their ministry. They would take communion to shut-ins. They organized vacation Bible school for their kids. They would organize their neighborhood to make the streets around the church safer. And they also partnered with the larger community to ensure that what benefited the congregation benefited the neighbors. The president of the congregation was a carpenter and he teamed up with a a co-op for cleaning ladies who needed a space, along with a, a theater company that wanted a venue And together we renovated an abandoned theater that was in the church to be a space where the women could meet in the morning and have their cleaning co-op and in the evening local bands and theater companies could come and perform. And the revenue generated from this ministry allowed St. Paul's after one year to be able to pay me to be their full-time pastor. And I thought to myself, we did it. To be honest, I thought to myself, I did it, right? I, I, I snatched victory from the jaws of defeat, ha, 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 So all that was left is for the congregation to call me as their pastor. And I said, well, you know, I'm a humble man. I don't, I don't want to be there while they talk about how much they love me, so I'm going to go visit my family in Mexico. They can vote on me, and I'll come back. And so when I came back, the congregation said, good news, pastor, we unanimously voted to call you as our pastor. And I said, yay. And then I got an email from the bishop's assistant. And it said there was a problem. Oh, so I called up the bishop, said, hey, what's the problem? The bishop's assistant said, well, we were all set to have the meeting to call you as the pastor, and I explained to the congregational president that I, as the bishop's assistant, would run the meeting, and the congregational pastor said, wait, it's a congregational meeting. I'm the congregational pastor, or I'm the congregational president. I should run the meeting. The bishop's assistant said, no, no, the rules of the the synod are that I have to run the meeting, and the congregational president said, well, then maybe we don't want to be a part of the synod and the uh, the bishop's assistant said well then i won't be there and i said well what does that mean and it meant that i didn't have a job and i said well this is just a big misunderstanding let's just have the bishop sit down with the congregation we'll sort it all out turns out it wasn't a big misunderstanding the bishop sat down with the congregation and the bishop essentially threatened the congregation and the congregation threatened to leave the denomination turns out There was decades of bad blood between these two, which I hadn't addressed or paid attention to because I thought the success of this ministry was about me. A month later, the denomination had one less congregation. The congregation didn't have a pastor and I didn't have a job. Not only did I not have a job, I had lost what I had spent four years of my life working on, my dream, my vision for what church could be. In Paul's letter to the first Corinthians, which we read today, chapter 10, Paul tells the people of Corinth that the Hebrews in the wilderness had Jesus with them. He said, look, when the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea, that was their baptism. He said, when they ate the manna from heaven and, and drank water from the rock, that was their communion because Jesus is the bread of heaven, and Jesus is both the rock and the living water. Paul's saying the Israelites in Exodus had Jesus, and yet they still sinned, they still screwed up, they still get cut down. And the reason is not because they're bad or evil or worthless. It takes the Israelites 40 years to walk what you should be able to cover in about six days at a good pace. It takes them 40 years to cover that ground because God is waiting for a generation that had only known slavery, that had had a life of slavery ingrained in them. God was waiting for that generation to die, to make room for their children who had been born in freedom, who had only known trusting God for their daily life. God was waiting for that new generation to be the generation to plant in Israel, that they might be the ones to bear fruit of God's love. Paul tells the Corinthians this to say, look, you're all nearly converted to to following Jesus. Don't think just because you now know Jesus that somehow you're immune, immune from failure and hardship, immune from being cut down. Paul says, if you think you are standing, watch out so that you do not fall. Sometimes in the parable of the fig tree, we are the fig tree. Sometimes we have grown in ways that are not life-giving, that don't bear fruit, and they are so ingrained in us that the only hope for new life to be born there is for what we knew to be cut out. Sometimes even the gardener Jesus says, you know, I gave it that extra year of love and nothing's coming out. So go ahead, cut it down. Fun fact, since we're talking about a Spanish congregation, the Spanish word for fig is ego. It's spelled differently, right? It's not not spelled the same way that, like, your sense of self, your ego is spelled. But phonetically, it sounds exactly the same, ego. And I think it's sort of a funny coincidence because the honest truth is, right, my ego was big and it had lots of beautiful leaves, but it wasn't bearing fruit. It wasn't giving life. And it got cut down. In that same passage in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul goes on and he says, no testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will provide a way out so that you will be able to endure it. Now, this verse is where that phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle, comes from. But that's not what the verse is actually saying. Because lots of people are given more than they can handle in life. A parent who has to suffer the death of a child. The mothers in the Ukrainian maternity ward that was bombed. The people in our gospel reading who had that tower just fall on them and crush them. These are things that they could not handle. It is hubris to believe that we can handle anything that comes at us in life. It is only God who can handle anything. What this passage is talking about is sin and temptation. What Paul is saying is when we are tempted to sin, sin is never our only option. God will provide another way. When we are tempted, by our failures, by our defeats. Sometimes we are tempted either with hubris or humiliation, and both are sin, right? Humiliation, that act of saying, I am worthless because I have failed. I have no value. I do not deserve love. That is a denial of God's promise of your goodness, God's promise that you are God's beloved child with whom you are well pleased. It is just as bad as the hubris that says, I must be the best. If I failed, it's someone else's fault. They made me do it, and I'm going to cut off anyone who says otherwise. But between these two options of hubris and humiliation, God gives us a third option, and that third option is humility. Humility is different from humiliation. Humiliation is the the self-effacing, self-destruction. Ah, I am nothing. Humility is affirming our self-worth. But whereas hubris affirms our self-worth by comparing ourselves to others, humility affirms our self-worth through our connection to others. Hubris says, I am the fig tree, and I must produce the most to prove that I am the best and I have worth. But humility says, I am the soil of the vineyard, i know i have worth because the gardener digs into me and tills manure into me i know i have worth because the owner of the vineyard sees me as so valuable that he will not let a tree that does not bear fruit waste my space humility says i am the soil of the vineyard i bear fruit because i have received the love of the gardener and the vineyard owner who love me enough to take out what does not give life and put in what does. Hubris says, I must bear fruit to prove that I have worth. Humility says, I know from all the connections that I have that I have worth, and therefore it is my joy to bear fruit. Six years ago to this day, I preached my final sermon in Brooklyn. It was on these exact texts, which is why I am telling you this story today. And as I preached that last sermon in St. Paul's on the text that we have heard today, I told the people there that I, like the fig tree, had been cut down. My ego had been cut down. But I also told them that I trusted That God cut me down so that I might have life abundant. That I trusted that in that empty space in my heart that had been cut down, God would plant something new and life-giving. Because in my time in Brooklyn, incredible fruit had been born in the ministry there. But that fruit that was born it was never because of me alone it was never because of my ego it was because of the connections that god surrounded me with it was because the people of saint paul's poured love into me and into their community they taught me how to be their pastor they worked alongside with me in god's vineyard and it was those connections that bore fruit i trusted in god's love for me because god saw me worthwhile to connect me to such wonderful people. And I trusted that just as God had done that in Brooklyn, God would do it again wherever I ended up. And God has. God planted me here in Chico, in this congregation, connected me to you wonderful people, you who introduced me to my wife, who cheered for us at our wedding in this very room, you who supported us at the birth of our first child. Sometimes I think about what happened six years ago, the way in which the ministry I served came to such an abrupt and absurd end, the way I felt so chopped down in that moment. I think back to what happened six years ago, and I give thanks to God. I give thanks to God because I, had I not been cut down six years ago, I never would have met my wife. I never would have met my daughter. I never met, would have met you. You who have helped me believe that I truly do have worth as a pastor in God's vineyard, not because I am somehow better than others, but because God has connected me to you. You who teach me every day how to be your pastor. You who work alongside me every day in God's vineyard. You who pour your love into me and into this community in ways that bear beautiful, life-changing fruit. For that, I am so grateful. When our pride cuts us off through comparison, Christ upholds us through connection. May God connect us to one another that we might uphold the world with the fruit of God's love. Amen.